0: that stuck with me forever knowing that when I think to myself, when I'm encountering another wall, that wall is there to keep those people who do not want something bad enough out. And I know that I am one of those people who do want it bad enough. So I just have to find a way to go over it, around it, under it, or through it and keep on going. And that's the mindset you need to continue to pick yourself back up every single day.
1: It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding, and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves, and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. When I started this, like your story is someone I think about. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful at full I met you and, and we can do this because I, I think when I listen to your story, it just resonates so well in terms of resilience and bouncing back. But I think first thing we're, we're all thinking, you know, when this does come out of all the healthcare workers on the front line and what they're going through right now with COVID-19. And so I guess my first question to you would be, you know, how, how is it affecting you both maybe mentally, physically and, and your business? And how are you feeling about things and, and things you've heard from other people that you communicate with?
0: Sure. So to start, like myself, I actually am truthfully handling it really well because my life is already, like I kind of mentioned, I'm an entrepreneur. I work from home all the time. Everything I need to needed to already do to keep myself mentally focused mentally well i'm already doing so there was no not a transition for me and and i laughed and joked too as an entrepreneur like i'm already used to not knowing when my next patron's is coming in so really this this is like my life so uh i actually honestly just have gotten excited i think that there's a lot of opportunity especially for people who are willing to put themselves out there uh brainstorm become creative think of new ways to provide value uh tap into some of their strengths that uh, this is the best time for so many of us to really become who we really can be and or are meant to be. When I think about who needs help, what do they need help with? I think two things that stand out. Number one is hope and inspiration to believe that it is possible. And then also resilience to learn how they can develop resilience during this time. Because um, one of the things I like to say is you learn to survive hard times by living hard times. So although they may not feel like they're the strongest right now, they need to know that it's necessary they go through this process today to become stronger for something tomorrow. And given the situation we're in, this is one of the hardest things you'll ever have to fight through. Just think about how strong you'll be when you come out of it on the other side.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. And and I'm kind of thinking it myself as as uh, it's, it's kind of a test if you can mentally think of it as a test. And, you know, if we can all come out of this mentally, physically stronger, uh, we're in a pretty good situation. You know, early on in this podcast, I want to ask you as a Paralympian, how did you feel about the decision with the Olympics and the Paralympics? And what are you hearing?
0: As far as my opinion goes with the Olympics and Paralympics being canceled, I think that uh, it was the right decision and that it was inevitable to happen. Regardless whether you look at it from the health perspective, I think that's obvious. At the same time, what's obvious to me is that it's It would be skewed competition if they were to try and continue. Have athletes who don't have the ability to train by restrictions or or whatever their resources are during this time that they necessarily can't. To put on a games where you know that in the final four to six months leading up to it that some people haven't been able to stick to their regimen, it doesn't equal fair competition, which is what the Olympics and Paralympics are all about. So I think that by far it's the right decision to postpone it. And it wasn't easy, but uh, as it's been stated, I had the opportunity to chat with uh, some some people from the Canadian Paralympic Committee. And I think that the coolest thing is just that they decided to take a leadership position and be the first to uh, first speak out about it. And then within 48 hours, pretty much, everybody else followed suit. So I
1: think that was pretty um, amazing from uh, Canada's standpoint. And do you think as an athlete, do you think there's a letdown knowing that You've got to train full out for another year or do you think there's new found ambition? Definitely
0: I think it can definitely go both ways. And then that just comes down to mindset and how you view your situation. Because there will be athletes who have trained so hard and they know they're so close and they feel like they're completely ready. And so they're gonna be frustrated that they gotta now extend that. Whereas All of us have heard stories about athletes that have been going into games injured, and maybe this is the blessing in disguise for some of them. But regardless of whichever situation you're in, one of the success principles I talk about is that even if you're not responsible for what happened to you, you're responsible for what you do about it, is that as a high-performance athlete, it's your job and your duty to roll with the punches and to always find a way to adapt and adjust and to keep looking forward. And if it means that you have been at your best, you got to keep going longer, well, that's what that's the game that you're in, and then that's what you need to do.
1: You're right. It's a great point. You know, it was great to see Canada coming out and making that leadership decision. I, I think they made the right decision for the safety of everyone. And and you brought up the point about athletes just being ready. We all want to see uh, Olympics and Paralympics where people are actually ready and competing, and audiences are there. Totally. Yeah, empty
0: stands. Half of the country is competing. Not everybody being 100%. Like, what kind of games is that? Like, we want to see the best of the best. And despite some broken
1: hearts, this is what's the the right move. And so, okay. So, transitioning from that, let's talk. You know, we both grew up around the Niagara area. I think you were more Grimsby, Beamsville. I got it right. And I'm St. Catherine. Beamsville, Vineland. Beamsville, Vineland. Let's just walk through your story a little bit. Like, tell me a little bit about your hobbies, what you were like in school. What you were like as someone growing up, kind of, and then some of the, the sports you got into and when you really wanted to excel from a performance point of view.
0: Basically, when I was a kid, I got introduced to all the stick and ball sports by my parents. It was just try everything, see what sticks. And hockey was out of soccer, basketball, baseball, et cetera, the one that stuck with me the most. And I played for about five years from around the age of like eight until 13, but it was definitely no good like I was okay but I was definitely not going anywhere with it and I actually started to hate team sports and it was right around the same time when uh, my neighbors down the street got dirt bikes for Christmas when I was 10 and I begged my dad for 2 years till I was 12 I got my first bike and that's when skateboard motocross BMX and snowboarding took over my my mindset and my realm of what I wanted to do so that was basically what carried me through high school and I ended up racing for a few years, broke my leg three times. The first time I got hit by a car, the second and third time I was on my bike and wow. I knew racing wasn't my thing. And then that's when I started into the freestyle.
1: So you were, you started with racing and, and was it on like dirt tracks then I assume? Yep. Yeah. So yeah. in,
0: uh, in Canada we have CMRC, the Canadian motocross racing
1: competition or circuit. Um,
0: in Ontario we've got about 10 or 15 tracks. So I would, I hit up about five or six of them throughout the year and couldn't afford to do an all, do an entire series, so I just did what I could. Um
1: it was fun, man. Yeah, like rigid tracks. And and is it an expensive sport growing up? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah like I mean, you can scrape by,
0: you know, with the odds and ends parts, but if you ever wanted to take it somewhere, it definitely costs tens of
1: thousands or over 100,000 a year probably. And then you started to, you know, you got into motocross, you, you started doing jumps, crazy jumps from all these videos I've seen you. Did you have fear going into those? Like, how, how, Do you remember the first time you might have like done a trick or done something like that? And is it kind of like at that age, you just got no fear? Or what's going through your mind?
0: Well, definitely when I was younger, I had no fear. I was like legit not scared of dying. When I deliver keynotes today, for example, like I, I speak on the hero mindset, which is a lot about how to have a mindset to focus on small things to make a big difference, how to be the hero of your own movie. And we can do that by focusing on three things every day, which are hero moments, hero decisions and hero actions. The hero moments is about accepting responsibility, which I just, just talked about a little bit with uh, the athletes. Uh, and the second piece is taking things one step at a time, which would parallel to three somewhat across. And the third thing is about uh, taking action in spite of fear. So to talk about learning tricks in freestyle motocross, you know, whether it was, um, we haven't gotten all the way into my story about being paralyzed and learning to walk, but, you know, making Team Canada, learning to walk or learning a freestyle motocross trick, I can remember those first tricks I tried because everything was one small step at a time. Like before I could jump a hundred foot gap and do a cliffhanger where you hang off the handlebars by your tippy toes and do a full handstand in the air. I remember the day of trying to learn to clear my first 10-foot gap. And I wasn't even trying to do a trick. I was just trying to clear the gap, and I crashed. But once I got that down, it's like, well, where's the 20-foot gap? Where's the 30-foot gap? And so I started to get some bigger gaps. That's the first piece. To get enough air time that you can actually take your hands off in the air. And once I did that, then it's like a one-hander. Then it's like a one-hander and like a one-footer. Then it's like a one-hander and a no-footer. And then it's like, okay, well, now I can do that. Let's see if I can stretch it out farther. And you, And so you just get more and more comfortable. And most people will know a trick like a Superman sea crab where you're hanging off the back of the bike like Superman. Yeah. So to learn a Superman sea crab, you first, you know, by this point you're jumping 60, 70, 80, 100 foot gap. So you got the gap down pad, you're comfortable in the air. But like I said, first it's like get your hand back to the grab hole and then just do a no footer. Then get your hand back to the grab hole, do no footer, and push your butt back further. Then get your hand down to the grab hole, push your butt back further, make sure you kick your legs up in the air. And it's just repetition, 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 like hundreds to thousands of jumps. And then you just get you just get familiar with it and then you work on your extension.
1: And so as you were getting into this and doing more and more tricks, you know, I, I heard from your story that did you really start taking this serious? after and you may want to touch on it after the accident your dad had or were you already into this well before? Sure. So to like give the listeners
0: some context here. Uh the short story today I'm mostly known as being the Paralympic athlete in sledge hockey. Um uh, I played five years with Team Canada. But the backstory is first myself, like I said, um how I got into into Paralympic sport was breaking my back on my dirt bike. So I pursued freestyle motocross for Three years, like intensely from about the age of, um, 20 to 23. I'm 37 now. And I did my first show of Canada on Canada Day of 2006. And then two weeks later is when I broke my back. So that's the short story about my injury, my freestyle motocross, and how it led it, it led me into sledge hockey. And then the backstory, um, is that yes, my dad four years earlier was paralyzed in a hunting accident. So we were out deer hunting, building a tree stand. My dad was up in the tree when the branch broke and he fell two stories to the ground, broke his back as well. And the difference between my dad and I was that he severed his spinal cord, which deemed him a complete paraplegic, so he had no chance of ever recovering. But I was an incomplete, meaning I fractured and dislocated my vertebrae, surgery realigns it, and then I had a chance better because this just had a lot of bruising and swelling around the spinal cord, even though at the time there was no feeling or movement.
1: And so, you know, how long after your dad had that, that accident did did you have your own accident
0: it was four years apart
1: and do you remember much from that day like i've i've heard and i, and I heard from you that your buddy was recording and then you said to him keep recording like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what was going through your mind at that point and it's pretty crazy like that's actual footage that he's got from you jumping, is that correct?
0: That's the crash. yeah, that's me breaking And that my was back Halliburton? Afterlife.
1: Yeah. And so what was it? Was it a competition? Was it a crowd that just gathered to watch you do a crazy jump? Or what what ha- what happened that day? Like what were you there for?
0: So there's an event that was no it's no longer operating. In Toronto, you might be familiar. We used to have Wake Stock. Yes. Yeah. So this guy created an event called Rock the Wake, which competed with Wake Stock. So there's Wakeboarding Freestyle Motocross concerts, parties and all that other stuff combined. And so I was there to jump and perform at this show. And it was the first jump of the day. Uh wasn't focused because I was too worried about the other riders that were there. The ramps were crooked, the wind's blowing, the crowds forming, and I didn't want to look like a wuss. So I decided to just hit the jump anyway. You know, the phrase like man up, for example, it's like just, just hit it. And I wasn't focused mentally and I wasn't centered on my bike, so as I took off, the back end got kicked higher than I expected, and my split second decision was to either stay on the bike and head dive in the ground, or jump off and break my legs. And as you probably may have heard, or I don't know if experienced, but like when you, we have those moments where life flashes before our eyes, like a lot of stuff goes through your head. So that's what I remembered. It's happened before all the time when we're crashing in motocross. Like what's going to happen? You split seconds. So I jumped off. And when I pushed off from the bike, um, it fell behind me, but I free fell from the sky. I landed on my butt, not my feet. And so that impact broke my back, pelvis, ribs. And like you said, when I lay on the ground there, my Chris, my buddy Chris, um, Mudman's is his nickname. And when he was filming it, so he caught the crash on camera, puts the camera down, walks, runs over to me, paramedics around me, reaches down over through the crowd and the paramedics. And he's like, he grabs my hand. He's like, REMS. He's like, I got you, man. I love you. And true story, the first words that came out of my mouth is I reached up in the sky, and I grabbed Chris's hands, and I looked him in the eyes and said, Chris, you better be filming this. And Chris apologizes to me. He he's like, he literally apologizes to me and he like steps back and he turns the camera back on. And the reason why, like the mindset is, is that I knew that this is just the beginning of my next chapter. And the the final chapter hasn't been written yet. And when we think about the heroes in our lives, the people that we look up to the most, they're the people who have had the stories from tragedy to triumph, from adversity to success. And it's like everyone thinks like this coronavirus is the example is that when the tragedy strikes, the instinct is that you want to turn the camera off. You want to hide. You want to retreat. But this is the time to show up. Like, this is the time when it just begins. Like, this is not the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of your comeback story today. So, that's what I get fired up about. Is I did a talk once for the Ontario Provincial Police, and I, I, I'm driving home. And one of the officers I gave him a business card, and he calls me on the way home. And he's like, Kev, that was great. He's like, I just got one question. He's like, Where do you get your resilience from? Like, how can you identify it? And I couldn't at the time, but with him and I sat and hashed it out. And what it came down to is I I figured out, I'm like, my resilience comes from extreme sports and particularly freestyle motocross. And it comes from the culture because we live in a culture where when we get knocked down, we just get back up because that's what we do. It's what we're made to do. It's non-negotiable. As soon as you crash, you know, because we feel like action sports, you capture X games. What's the most exciting thing is the crashes. Why? Because you know the athlete's going to try again. You know he's going to come back next year and try to hit the podium and win that gold medal. And so when we fall down, it's in our culture that there's no fucking way that we're going to stay down. Is that The first thing, as soon as that crash happens, is we're trying to figure out how can we get back up as quickly as possible and go out there, do it, and try again. I'm sorry. No, that's I'm amazing, like,
1: ah. man. I love how you're getting <laughs> fired up. That's, that's fucking awesome. So I was going to ask you, and I think you kind of answered it. What gave you that? moment of saying, keep the camera rolling. And in your head, this isn't, this, this is just going to be the next chapter. Was it, was it maybe what you had gone through with your father? Is it just what you learned through, through, uh, riding?
0: It's riders. I mean, all of these, there's all kinds of reasons why I am the way I am and where I've got drawn inspiration. But when I think about why, when I crashed, the first thought was turn the camera back on is because I knew who I looked up to prior to the crash, and I looked up to these other heroes. I watched their videos. Jeremy Stenberg tries to backflip at the Dew Tour and breaks both of his ankles, and then he's out for like twelve or eighteen months, and comes back and of the X Games. I want that story. And so, when something happens and you feel like you're down and out, you know, who, where does your mind go to? Does it go to thinking that I'm a failure? I'm never going to get out of this, or does it go to the place where it's like, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be like? And what do I want my story to be? And so I knew that when I crashed, the first thought I had is, well, number one, when we crash, we keep the camera rolling. And two is that I think of my life like a movie because when a motocross, when you watch motocross movies, like there's a theme throughout the whole movie and then different riders have different sections and then different writers have different stories. So I just knew that. I wanted the camera to stay rolling because this is the beginning of the next chapter of my movie and next section of my story. And that I know I'm going to be in the hospital. and I know I'm going to be getting back up on that bike. So you better capture the moments of me getting through that process.
1: That's amazing. I love that, man. And you were told, if I'm not mistaken, you can, you can kind of walk the audience and listeners through this. You were told, hey, you might never walk again, which I'm sure scared the shit out of you. But I don't know if you've heard of Inky Johnson before, you may have, but Inky Johnson is a guy Will Smith respects a lot and he put on the stage and he was a football player and he grew up very, very poor and he ran laps uh, after practice with the mo- his mom's car lights on after she came back from Wendy's working until 10. And like no shoes would run, run back and forth. And he then went to school in, in, in the States in college and was one of the best defensive players. I think he was a corner or a safety was one of the best. All he had to do was play the last year and he was going to get drafted to the NFL. And then he had a terrible injury and could never play football again. But his whole backstory is incredible because the first time he went to be recruited by this university in the States was the first time he actually slept in a bed without anyone. Because in his household, he only had, he had to share a bed with like four siblings. And a lot of times they'd be sleeping on the floor. And the doctor said to him, You'll never walk again, or it might have been you'll never play football again. And he said, With all due respect, doctor, you don't know where I've come from and you don't know my mindset. And I don't know where you got your resilience back to to then, you know, move on to now train for the Paralympic Games. But I'm sure you can kind of relate to that when they might have been telling you like, hey, you might not be able to walk again.
0: You just took the words out of my mouth. Their words verbatim I remember were, Kevin, you're now an incomplete paraplegic and you'll likely never walk again. And if you ever do walk again, you'll have braces on your legs up to your hips the rest of your life. So those were the words I remember hearing from the doctor. And there was a little bit of that fuck you attitude, but it wasn't so much that. It was more of what I said in my mind, I said to the doctor, thank you. Appreciate everything you've done and I respect your opinion. Thanks very much. So it wasn't verbal, but what I said to myself in my mind was, You don't know me? You haven't even given me a shot yet. So Similar to uh, Inky Johnson, there is that you don't know if you don't try. And Les Brown has a quote that's so powerful is that someone else's opinion of you does not have to become your reality.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's super powerful. I heard, and you can kind of explain it, that you started playing sledge hockey, I think, locally a little bit. And even before that, what was your plan next? Did you think you might go back to. Maybe competing one day in the X Games, or or did you kind of say, okay, I got to take a different route? So
0: after I got hurt, I didn't know that Paralympic sport existed for two years, mm-hmm. and I was at wheelchair basketball because I saw a flyer at the YMCA for it as a, like a volunteer thing for fun. And a kid rolls up, and his name is Kevin. He said, "Hey, have you ever tried sledge hockey before?" And I said, "No, what's that?" Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, and he goes, "It's real sick." You get to hit people with disabilities. And I was like, that sounds so wrong. And then I'm like, where do I sign up? And <laughs> and so that was my intro into this, in this Sledge. Played one year house league, second provincial, and third year I made Team Canada after there was a transition with the team shifting from the Vancouver Paralympics. Okay. So when I got injured, like I did continue to ride motocross. But I with my spasms that I have in my legs from the nerve damage, I knew that not only was it not i could keep riding but i I at that point i had to make a decision is it worth the risk that i could get injured again or am i lucky that i got a second chance and i don't want to screw that up so it was the spasms in my legs kind of threw off my balance like i could ride trails really well but i couldn't jump and i said i'll, I'll appreciate the second chance i got so i rode for fun and today i'm too far gone from it still love it forever but um then sled hockey, like I said, came in and just kind of it filled a void. It it was, um, you know, physical, putting on gear, getting around the, the boys, and uh, it gave me something to get out of the house. And especially living with a disability, isolation is big. Um, depression is a big problem, and so having that community that can, you can connect with was uh, such a breath of fresh air. And everybody's the same too. Like we're all different with different disabilities and challenges, but the fact that we're all going through similar problems helps normalize what you're going through and so i was still in a wheelchair at that time when i started playing sledge and, and it was a community that i needed to connect to
1: so you obviously you went you went in did you go in 2010
0: i was there with team ontario
1: okay and we
0: watched team canada play but i didn't join until after the vancouver paralympics
1: were done okay and so you go in 2014 I'll let you tell a bit of the story and what your team accomplished there. But I'd love to hear as someone who's a big sports guy and really, you know, looks up to Paralympians and Olympians and and what they do for our country. What was it like going to the games and doing what you did? And then can you speak to a little bit about, you know, the the fall after? Because uh, to a lesser extent than what you might have gone through, I went on exchange when I was in third year. It was the absolute best time of my life. I lived in France for five months. I got to travel almost every weekend. I met some of the best people I've ever met, still in touch with. And then, um, you know, I'll be honest, that's when I went through my first bout with uh, depression and anxiety uh, and really had a downfall after that and had to bounce back from that. So love to hear what you accomplished at the Olympics because I think it's amazing.
0: Yeah as you described, it's it's not easy coming down off of a high, especially if it's like several years versus like a week-long trip kind of deal. Uh Basically, when I think about competing and playing in Sochi and playing for Canada, uh, there's three stories that stand out or three memories that I always like to share. Number one was the volunteers. I remember the experience of like, just being around the Russian volunteers who learned a few words in English and we learned a few words in Russian and I genuinely believe that Canada was the most favorite country, like right alongside or if not more than Russia, just for how much love that everyone showed. So that was really cool. Um, playing at the world stage was a memory that I'll never forget. You know, knowing that the whole world is watching all the messages that came in from people back home, being a part of a global event was so, so cool. And achieving personal high performance is something that I'm very proud of. Like we all dream of and think about, or many of us dream and think about like, you know, what could I accomplish if I had the resources, if I had the time, if I had the opportunity, like how far could I go with it? And that's something that really sticks out for me is like, I, I had that opportunity and chance and I took advantage of it. So like, that's a, that's a personal achievement that really fills my heart to know that I, I had that in my life. But then also to just like see my family in the stands, like mom, grandma and my sister came to watch, and after everything that our family and myself had been through, like, you know, there's that moment when they put the medal over your neck on the ice and like, it just sinks and you feel like the weight of the actual real Olympic medal. That was super cool. And then like when that's around my neck and then like, you know, looking through the sea of everybody on the other side of the hockey rink and actually making eye contact and waving with my mom and my grandma, and my sister was like one of the coolest things to like, it was absolutely the moment where you see in movies and like in that, in that second, it's like your whole... Life kind of flashes before your eyes. For me, it was like from the day my dad fell from the tree until that moment where the metal went around my neck. It was just like a, a movie and fast forward where it's just like, and I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> so that was, that was like, those are like my coolest memories from competing.
1: And the camera is still rolling from the, from the yeah, accident. Exactly. It's rolling, right? Yeah,
0: totally. Like that's exactly it. It's like, you know, and having, metaphorically and literally having that footage from the crash made that moment. that much sweeter because now that's become a part of like the next few chapters of the story. It's like not like, you know, meddling at the games is on camera because C- Canada and the world is recording it. But to have the backstory about how it got there is like another clip. So exactly. Like, that's why it's like, you know, through social media today, document ver- not versus create. That's a Gary Vaynerchuk saying, but it's like, you know, you're doing it right now the transitions happen through the coronavirus you're back at home it's your chance to start the podcast well this is the start of the next chapter it's like who knows how far you can take this or will take this now but this is documenting it as well I banged out a few of my my first episodes I'm getting the bugs out I took the Seth Godin course and like here we are like this is it You're recording it through audio
1: that's right and I gotta ask looking back what did your mom and sister say, or what did you say to yourself? Was it surreal when it's like, holy crap, you went through what happened with your father to your accident, and now you have a Paralympic medal around your neck?
0: A little bit. I like, guess no. I mean, I never in my life imagined I'd be there or be here today doing the things I'm doing. Like That stuff is surreal. I think that Here's something I believe that you and everyone could maybe take away is that I believe personally, by following your heart, it might lead you down a well-worn beaten path, but it will lead you to where you want to go and where you need to go. It just happens in an indirect way that you can't see today. So all of the dreams that I had in motocross, I've gotten to live through sledge hockey. I dreamt of being a professional athlete. I dreamt of getting paid to be an athlete. I dreamt of traveling the world, signing autographs for little kids, and basically my version of getting famous, or like being in a magazine through my sponsors. I was I was in an ad through motocross, but I was tenfold in sled hockey, and so I broke my back. It wasn't easy, but what I knew is that I was following my heart and my dream and my passion, and that's where it led me. And there's no way when the crash happened could I have seen where that was going to lead me and what my life would have looked like today. But what I knew is that I just had to continue to trust my gut and follow my heart and it would take me where I needed to go. And I think that's again the metaphor for where we're what we're living through today is that for many of us, we all have an opportunity to look at this situation as a negative or a positive and be pessimistic or optimistic. And we have to continue to show up every single day in our life and continue to move forward and trust our gut and believe whichever path we're being pushed down right now whether we're getting covered from EI or employer or not, whatever. It's just that life is sending you down a path right now. And it's what you make of it. And you can't see what that end result or what that future looks like for you. I mean, I couldn't even see a couple of weeks ahead, let alone a couple of years ahead when I got injured. When I look back over the last 13 years of my life, holy fuck has ever been awesome. And there's no way I would ever trade it. And you don't want that stuff to happen to you. But when it does, you got to ask yourself a question. What do you want your story to be?
1: No, I love that. And I mean, I think that connects back to your hero mindset and and what you speak about. So you've got the Olympic medal, and now you've got the sledge hockey experience, which I want to speak about. You've spoken across Canada, and and I assume outside of Canada. You know, I'd love to know what happened between getting that medal and where you are today. And then I've got some some questions I really want to pinpoint on that we can dig into.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, Basically, you know, we started to touch on life after an exciting event. In this case, it was the post-Olympic crash. You know, I thought I had it handled. I never, I knew the post-Olympic crash could be a real thing, but until you live it, you don't know what it's going to be like. Same thing where we're going through today. Some people are born resilient, maybe. They just have it instilled in them. Some have to kind of develop that. But when I was going through the post-Olympics, I stopped doing what works. I stopped training, I stopped eating right, I started staying out late, I was drinking, partying, having fun, celebrating, because that's what we can and deserve to do. But by not having another goal to stretch for, like I didn't really want to compete again. Our team was delayed on starting the next season. All of our staff wiped out, started over, I was in a pinch, I ran out of money, and I made the decision to go back and play, not because I wanted to, but because I needed to, so I could get a paycheck. I spiraled into depression and I hit rock bottom. And what saved me was I was in the emergency psychiatric ward at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton. And after two hours in the waiting room, got to the emergency room and there was one other boy. And on both of his forearms, he had fresh razor blade cuts on the inside of his forearms. They're like bleeding in the room there. And we both go into our rooms with family members. Like I have my mom and grandma and he has parents and the door shut. And like less than five minutes go by and you could hear him screaming on the other side. And he's like, fuck you. He's like, you said you weren't going to make me talk about this stuff. You lied to me. And he like kicks the door open and he runs down the hall and he punches the hand sanitizer off the wall. And the security's called and it calms down. And, and I realized in that moment that basically my, my depression I felt like had been cured. Um, what I knew in that moment was I'm not as bad as he is. I know what I did to get myself to this state. And I just need to accept personal responsibility, and I can turn this around, and I need to get better so I can help people like him. So when I looked at what I did wrong, like I said, I I stopped doing what worked. I stopped eating right. I stopped training. I stopped hanging out or getting outside of my house. I didn't have any new goals. When I looked at what could I do to turn this around instead of spiral down and spiral up, I didn't have the motivation to go to the gym. I didn't have the goals figured out, but I knew that I had to eat three times a day. So one of the things that I could focus on is my nutrition. So the first thing I did, I just say I went to the store and I bought apples. Instead of eating my crap, what could I do that I have control over? And I started getting some better food in my body. And at least by eating better, it helps improve your cognitive function and decision making. And that could lead me to make the next right step. Just like freestyle motocross, one small baby step. I lean on cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to have gotten myself out of depression And today, to maintain my well-being. And so when you look at some of the core techniques that really work, like I said, focusing on your diet, focusing on exercise, focusing on on mindfulness, getting around with friends so you're not isolated, goal setting, these are all things that you have control over. And you can start any one of them in any order, whatever works for you. Maybe you have the motivation to go for a walk, but you still eat like shit. But in my case, if I get the nutrition in order, I can get the next right step. And then I call my trainer to get accountable. show up to the gym now I got two okay what's the next thing I can do all right let's start setting some goals get back to the drawing board and the one thing I'll add to like what you described is coming back from a trip it's like all of a sudden sadness can set in the key to quick recovery is to have something to go for right away and have something to go for that is not easily attainable and that serves others
1: that's a great point And it is, it's all about, you know, having something that's bigger than yourself and something that can serve, serve others.
0: Yep. Go ahead. I'm just writing this down because I'm like, I got it. I got it. No, no, that's
1: good. And and, (laughs) you know, now we've gone through your story and you're truly someone who has bounced back. So I'm wondering how, how are you better positioned now? or say going through what you're going through now. And maybe this is great advice for for people that are listening. How are you better positioned now to bounce back in the future personally? And what would be the things that you're telling people now that might be in a slump? Sure. So
0: I'd love to share a resource I created with you that you could share with any listeners just by putting a link into the show notes or something. So I created for people to get started, a, a cognitive behavioral therapy checklist, CBT checklist, Okay. and it lists the 10, the 10 areas that I focus on, like I just described some of those, um, to maintain my resilience on a regular basis. And so those are what I focus on. Like I said, the hero mindset is about focusing on small things that make a big difference. So in addition to the things I listed, it's things like setting up your environment to bulletproof your mind. You know, Jim Rohn said every day, you've got to stand guard at the door of your mind. So that parallels with um, your habits as far as like what you consume. So I know that I need to keep a pulse on what's happening in the news right now, but I don't want to consume so much as it starts to rewire my brain and put me into a fear mindset versus um, a healthy mindset where I'm at today. Um, your environment, you know, in my bedroom, I've got a vision board, I've got a quote board, I've got my... Uh, journal uh, i've got my like my normal blank journal for like what i call a brain dump just to get negative thoughts out of my head and just write 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 until you have no more that you can so you've gotten it all out of your head um i've got the five minute journal which you can purchase on amazon and it's all about focusing on gratitude you know i've got my morning routine and my evening routine and the evening is like the one i struggle with the most but the morning is like dialed where it's like wake up on time straight in the shower you know get the gym in the morning so it's out of the way. Um, smoothie, I try to keep my breakfast routine straightforward so it's in and out, read, write, and then get into the hard work, the deep work and my regular schedule is no appointments before eleven a m because that's time I need dedicated to focus on what I need to do to make myself at my best okay. and leverage the, the time I have so anyways, I'm gonna share that with you. What others can do is i would like I say start with a checklist and find what areas of your life might you need to improve on. And to focus on what you can control. So as an example, maybe for those listeners who are at home with children, the kids can't necessarily leave the house right now. But can you control what time you go to bed at and what time you wake up at? Can you get an extra hour if you were to discipline yourself and wake up earlier rather than staying up to watch a sitcom show or read the news when you don't, when you already know what's going on? So you can start to steal back some of your time. Even if you may not be in the best shape right now. Like you you have to eat all throughout the day. So you have choices over the food that you choose to take in. So win the small battles. The battles are won at the grocery store. Win the battle there before you even get the food into your cupboard at home, before you gotta make the decision about what you wanna make. So if you don't buy it at the grocery store, like like I literally between chips and apples, I got both in my house now, but <laughs> it's like <laughs> But it's like at the grocery store you literally have to make the decision. It's like one or the other. And if you buy the apples, you come home either I don't eat, or I have to eat the apples. So that just forces me to make the right decision, but the battle is won at the grocery store.
1: That's a great point, because you're putting it in such simple terms that people can can really wrap their head around. And, uh, you know, I was even thinking about today. I mean, I was losing steam today and got out at 4.30 and went for a jog. I mean, I like exercising. I hate jogging, but I know I needed some sunshine, and the battle for me was... Getting my shoes on, stepping outside, putting on some music and going. Yeah, yes, yes,
0: yes. yes. Dude, okay. Let me share this one with you too. So how to rewire your habit. Okay. Uh, There's multiple ways. And there's a book titled Habit by Charles Duhigg. And it's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And in his formula, he's got three simple steps to rewire a habit. There's a cue, the routine, and the reward. And if you look at those three, that's the habit loop. That's where we repeat the motions over and over again, and that's where we get stuck. So if you can start to identify those three areas, then you can start to replace an old habit with a new one. So for example, as you're talking about exercise, because I had to do this exact strategy myself, is that I knew that in January of last year, 2019, is when I was not getting to the gym, and I had to move my gym routine from afternoon or evening to the morning, so I could get it out of the way. But my struggle wasn't working out. So cue, routine, reward. The routine is the workout. The reward is you feel good after looking in the mirror, and you're jacked, you're pumped, and you got the endorphins running for the day. My trouble was with the cue. So what I knew is that in the morning, I, I could crawl my way out of bed, but it sucked getting myself down to the gym. And so my trigger was, if I could at least, I have, here's what I basically, when I wake up, it's, I got to go to the shower first. I shower every single day of my life and that wakes me up. And then the decision was between whether I put on my underwear or my under armor. And so I, what I figured out was if I could replace my cue with the simple habit of putting on my under armor, as soon as I got my under armor on, there's no way I'm taking it off and there's no way that I'm changing my mind. It's as soon as I got that on, I feel the spandex, I feel it tighten up. I'm in the kitchen, I make my pre-workout, I get my shoes on whether I feel like it or not, and I move. And as long as I get myself to the gym, I work out and I get it done. So I just had to replace the cue. Some people might have to replace the routine. So maybe you're driving down the road, let's say um, somebody cuts you off and you're a smoker. You, The cue is going to be there all the time. You can't avoid that. But the routine is you go for a smoke you get, and then the reward is you get a nicotine hit. So I don't smoke, but I would get pissed off on the road. So then anger would take over sometimes. So what I figured out is how can I replace my routine, which was let let out the anger and you feel better that that guy's an asshole. Well, I had to figure out my playlist. Most often when I got angry with someone who cut me off, as an example, it's because I'm listening to heavy metal music, which I love. But it would trigger me more. So I have a calm playlist and literally it's as simple as that. But if I get pissed off, I'm like, Kev, take a deep breath and put on your calm playlist and 30 seconds or less. I'm all, I'm all out of my appointment. I can calm myself down. So when you look at replacing a habit, what people can do today,
1: cue, routine,
0: reward, what do you need to replace? And then that's how you can replace your, your your
1: bad habits. I agree with you. I think it's the first two that you really have to work through. So throughout all of this, I I know you've also, I think, released at least one book and then you have the second one that's, that's more about mental health. But talk, speak with me a little bit about the sledge hockey experience and I'll let you explain it in your own words. I think it's one of the coolest things people can do from a leadership development and corporate team building standpoint and i am sure there has been a lot of things along the line where it's like man i'm an entrepreneur now i I know you even mentioned the finance thing and trying to figure that out and you know cash flow and, and all those ratios become very important all of a sudden so so let us know about your business and then some of the things that you've had to learn throughout that and you're probably still learning every day i assume
0: Oh yeah I because of this coronavirus, I've had to go through cash flow for it's the third time that I've really dove into my spreadsheet, and it's still painful it's I'm not in the numbers I don't do numbers well, so it's not been easy but um the short story basically for anyone who's wondering what the flood talk experience is uh after retiring from sport, I knew I wanted to stay involved and help sport grow, and through doing community events, I saw an older demographic get pumped that they didn't want to get off the ice. And then one day I just had it finally click for me. I was like team building. And so I piloted the program with RBC, definitely proved the concept and went all in in 2015. So just have crested past four years, entering the fifth year. And basically we provide a turnkey operation out of the Ford Performance Center in Etobicoke, where we provide sled sticks, hockey gear, set up the dressing room just like team Canada. So when you walk in, you feel how I did when I got into the locker room for the first time. And it's a half day off-site team building activity led by myself with some other sledge hockey
1: athletes. That's amazing. And if people are interested, can you remind me of the website for it? Yep, yeah, Play com. And it, you know, are you still focused on a lot of speaking engagements or is your focus really on the sledge hockey experience right now? And and how do you do you balance those? Yeah, balancing the two hasn't been easy because
0: on one hand, they're the same business because they're me, but also have a bit of a different profile and not really a different demographic that I'm trying to reach. But the narrative is a little bit different because the sledge hockey experience has a lot to do with diversity and inclusion as a team-building activity, whereas my keynote speaking is mental health and resilience. But I've just been working to find a way to navigate and blend them together. My heart is more with sledge hockey just because it's in the locker room versus a stage. And that's my, my house is like the hockey arena. But especially today with everything that's going on, I've never been ever more excited about speaking. And today I'm not looking to... No one's hiring to bring a speaker onto the stage. But what I'm doing today, like I said, with that CBT checklist, um create more resources that people can pass around digitally and take what I have as my keynotes and model them into webinars and online courses. So today I'm that's literally what I'm doing here uh before and after our our interview and every single day this week is I'm building my digital presence and platforms so that I can educate people through through those formats.
1: No, that that's awesome. And and I want to let you get back to that but i've got one last question and it's a two-parter and i think it might fire you up a bit and i'm interested too as you talk about your story and keeping the camera rolling because you've got the next chapter what do you think stops people from pursuing the bigger impact that they may have the capability to do and what is the biggest impact and legacy you want to leave? Sure. So the,
0: what comes to mind immediately is what, why I think people would not pursue their passion or their dream. Uh, number one, I think it's fear, you know, fear of, of failing themselves, whether they'll make it or not and being okay with that. And also the fear of failing in front of others, you know, it's, hard enough to believe in yourself sometimes and then to put that out there and then other people see you not reach it can feel devastating but to know that anybody who's ever achieved anything great has had to go through that same process and that there is no other way there's no way that you're going to um, go after something that means so much that makes a big impact and not have it be difficult it's supposed to be difficult there's a guy, uh, Randy Posh, who was a professor in the United States. He passed away, I think it was like the late 90s or early 2000s. And he gave what's called the last lecture. These professors, when they would leave the school, they'd have their one last final lecture. So the last lecture. And when Randy, he ended up, um, he was diagnosed with cancer, lived longer than he was planned to, and had the opportunity to give his last lecture. It became so famous on YouTube before YouTube became a thing. There was t- like a, hundreds of thousands or millions of views. And he said in his lecture that the walls that are put up in front of us are put there for a reason. And that reason is to keep those people who do not want something bad enough out. And that stuck with me forever, knowing that when I think to myself, when I'm encountering another wall, that wall is there to keep those people who do not want something bad enough out. And I know that I am one of those people who do want it bad enough. So I just have to find a way to go over it, around it, under it, or through it, and keep on going. And that's the mindset you need to continue to pick yourself back up every single day. I also think that um, as far as what stops people from pursuing their passions is in the belief of whether they can, to just look for someone else who has done what you have done. Because there really are very few things in this world that have not already been done that we don't have somebody to model ourselves after. So if it's changing careers, if it's being a, a mompreneur, like a mother, mom, mother entrepreneur, if it's starting your side hustle, if it's, you know, going back to school, if it's traveling the world on a hundred bucks a week or whatever, like somebody's done those things. So find someone who's already done it and model it and use them as your, as your hope and your inspiration of who you want to follow. And then the third thing about legacy they're asking here, if I were to think about the legacy I want to leave is that I want to know that I made a difference. And I want to know that I made a difference with people, especially around mental health, given that my dad, we didn't even get into it necessarily. We didn't even talk about my dad taking his own life, um, myself going through post-Olympic depression. I know what it's like to feel like you're at rock bottom, and that there's no way out. And then of course today people are, there's so many people who are going to be feeling that way. So knowing that I make a difference in people's lives to continue to find hope and inspiration to develop their resilience to keep on going is is something that's super important as well as uh, making a difference for those people who live with disabilities. That's what Sledge Hockey is all about for me is uh, using that as a tool and a medium to help the able-bodied population become advocates for people with disabilities. And it's just a matter of getting you butt down in a sled for a new perspective. And I think that if I could either through speaking or through Sledge Hockey connect with you and make an impact, that leaving a legacy that I made a difference in, in your life around either of those two things are what I'd love to be known for.
1: That That's so powerful. And, and if people want to check out this CBT checklist, is is it out yet? Where can people find that?
0: I will email it to you. If it's in the show notes of the podcast, grab it there. And guaranteed by the time this podcast is published, I will have it on my website, kevinremple.com and you can download it there as well
1: perfect and yeah i know we didn't get into your your father i know he passed after your accident that you had and and i saw your mom and you speaking and you know i think she made the comment that he'd be very proud of you and i'm sure he's with you looking down and um i'm sure he's smiling from ear to ear and uh thanks for doing this it's it's amazing
0: thank you thank you so much and yeah man my pleasure like without question I was, i've been in a heartbeat
1: Okay, cool. Get back to work and let's catch up over a beer or, uh, or a soda soon.
0: You got it, buddy. Okay, Thank man.
1: You. Cheers. Bye.
0: Yeah.